This is going to be a terrible sermon this morning. That's my introduction. Buckle up. It's going to be a real stinker. Is what I thought as I prepared this text this week, as I studied the text. There's a lot of details in this text. Our text is chock full of details. And it seems like just bits and pieces of useless information without any coherence. And you can get lost in the details of a text like this with all these details. You can get lost. I got lost. As I studied this text this week, lost in the details. And it wasn't until I widened my view that I began to escape the forest of details. And as I widened my view, I saw the juxtapositions. Juxtapositions, that's the title of my sermon. The story is laden with contrasts. It's just contrast after contrast. And the juxtapositions tell the story. The juxtapositions tell the story. What is the story? Why all the contrasts? Let's find out. We need to get into the text immediately. And we see the first contrast is between David and Absalom. The contrasts begin with David versus Absalom. Verse 18, chapter 18, verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him. David mustered the men because if we remember last chapter, Hushai bought David time. And David used that time to muster a defense against Absalom. Here's his response against Absalom. He mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David is mustering. David's in control. And David was a man of war, a chief architect general. He knew combat. And David sent out the army, verse 2. One-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abashai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. He's, he's spreading out his men for a tactical advantage. And David went on the offensive. It's David versus Absalom. And David wanted to lead the way. He said, I myself will also go with you. And David would never, you know, we know David, he never backed down from a fight. But his men had other, had other plans, verse 3. But the men said, you shall not go out. That, that, that command kind of tripped me up. You shall not go out. I, I understand why David should not go out. The men here, the troops, are wise. They're being wiser than David at this particular moment. But I really struggled with the command because the troops were commanding the king. And... It's the way the narrator presents it. The narrator begins the text with David, his pronoun, his first name. Then David mustered the men. David's in control. He mustered the men. And once he gave the command, once he ordered the men, it's now the narrator writes, the king ordered and the troops reordered. And the king submitted to the troops. And it, I, I wrestled with this. I got lost in the forest, of the details, until I saw what was really happening here. The narrator is contrasting. Here we have the, the foolishness of David and the wisdom of his men. He's contrasting David as David and David as king. 
David as in control and David as in submission. Or David in submission. And I didn't know what I, I didn't know what to make of it until I saw all the contrasts. And then they began to just explode on the page. And then the king, verse 5, ordered Joab and Abashai the Ittite, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. How were his men who were risking their lives to deal gently with the enemy? You can't attack and defend with compassion. You don't attack and defend with gentleness. It's a foolish command. In addition, it was a morale killer. We read verse 5, and all the men heard it. They all heard it. All the troops, all the troopers heard that the king gave the orders to the commanders about Absalom. They all heard. David was sending his people. He was sending these men out to risk their lives for him. And he wanted his son, who was the root of all of the evil, the root of all of the trouble. He wanted them to deal gently with their son while they risked their lives for the enemy. What a morale killer. David was wrong. And his troops were right. The narrator's contrasting. Verse 6, So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And David here, he chose the right location. Tactical advantage, fighting in the forest. And David diminished Absalom's numerical advantage by drawing the battle into the forest, and the result was victory. Verse 7, and the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. Remember, he has less than 2,000 men. And the battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. So David not only, I mean, he's a great warrior, right? He not only took advantage of the element of surprise, but he used the terrain of the forest as a tactical advantage. And as great as a strategist as he was, as great as a strategist as he was, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, right? Verse 9, and Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. It just so happened. That's, that's the narrator's irony dripping from his pen because the Bible knows better than just so happens. The Bible knows better than chance. The Bible knows that God is absolutely in control of all things. The Bible knows that God's everywhere present power upholds heaven and earth. So Jesus says in Matthew 10, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. God's even in control of insignificant things like sparrows. And he calls a lot of them to fall in my neighborhood as a child with my BB gun. Sorry. <clears throat> Isaiah 45 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God creates darkness and calamity. A God who creates darkness and calamity means a God who's in absolute control of all things and all time in all of history. He's a sovereign God. 
Do you want a sovereign God who's in charge of all things? Do you want a sovereign God who creates light and darkness? Do you want a sovereign who's in charge of darkness, who ordains evil even for his own purposes? Or do you want the contrary, the opposite? Gratuitous evil and a helpless God. That's your choice. But before you answer that question, let, you, let me remind you, if God is not in control of evil, if he does not create darkness, he cannot help you when the darkness befalls you. And you're left there alone in the darkness. You can pray, but you pray in vain. All that God can do is say, I'm here. I'm here for you. But we pray with assurance because God creates light in darkness. Well-being and calamity. And you can be sure that God can help you in the darkness because he is almighty. And he desires to help because he's a faithful father. Nothing happens by chance. But that's what the writer says. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of the Lord. We know better than that irony. Absalom, it says, was riding on his mule. And the mule went, un- well, a mule. Why a mule? Shouldn't he be on a war horse? <laughs> mule in the ancient world was a sign of victory. When ancient kings won the day, they would come riding into town on a mule. The mule was a symbol of, of conquest. It's a peace. It's a symbol of peace. Conquest. Here's Absalom before the battle's over, already on the mule. In his mind, it was a foregone conclusion that they would win the battle. Remember, he's going into war against less than 2,000 men with all of Israel. He's got all of Israel. It's a foregone conclusion. He's on the mule. Victory at hand. Definitely victory. Except for one problem. And that problem you have to widen your view and seize in chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 14 writes, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said to the council, said, The council of Hushai the archite is better than the council of Ahithophel. Here's the verse. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Ahithophel would have defeated David. That's what the text says, the good counsel of Ahithophel. It was good counsel. His plan would have won the day. He would have defeated David. But one problem. God ordained. God ordained to defeat Ahithophel. Ordination means God is in decisive control. It means God determined beforehand to defeat Ahithophel. God determined before the foundations of the earth. We know that from the rest of scripture. That's when he determines an eternal God. Determines before anything happened, good or bad. God ordained all of time in history. God has ordained all of time in history. God ordained Absalom's harm, which means David's kingdom would not fall. David's kingdom would not fall. God ordained harm, which means Absalom was going to fall no matter what David wanted. Contrasts, juxtapositions, David wanted to protect the young man Absalom. God wanted to harm. It's God's will versus David's will. David's sentimentality versus God's sovereignty. The narrator's contrasting. 
And it just so happened that he's riding on this donkey, and he went under this oak tree, it says. The mule went under a thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. How does one end up riding on a donkey, going under an oak tree, get caught, find himself dangling in an oak tree, dangling in an oak tree for anyone to come along to spot and find him? How does one end up so easily being picked off? God ordained it. God was handing Absalom over on a silver platter, suspended him in midair, Easy pickings because he was cursed by God. Verse 10 says, And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And then Joab said, The man who told him, You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground? Which is a very interesting question. Very interesting question, given, given that David just said a command not to harm the young man Absalom. Now Joab's like, Why didn't you harm him? And that's another juxtaposition. It's David's will versus Joab's will. Who will win? Verse 12. But the man said to Joab, even if, I felt the, even if I felt in my hand the weight of the thousand pieces of silver, I wouldn't reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. Now the trooper is talking back to the general, which was hard for me to understand. Like, you don't talk like that to your general. You don't tell your general. And, and then he calls him kind of a coward. He kind of like, verse 13, he says, On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have done it. You would yourself would have stood aloft. You're a coward. I know it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go against the king. I struggled with this test until I saw the juxtaposition. There's another juxtaposition, another contract. It's loyalty versus disloyalty. Loyalty versus disloyalty. He was loyal. The young man was loyal to the king, but not the general. Verse 14. Then Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. He took three javelins, threw them into the heart of the hanging man. He was there, easy pickings. He went over, just walked up easily to him, took his life. His three his armor bearers jumped in for the fight, and they killed Absalom. Easy pickings. Joab was unfaithful, but it was good. It was good, which is another juxtaposition. The death of Absalom not only secured David's kingdom, it did it in such a way to, for, to prohibit further bloodshed. And the war is over. Verse 16, and Joab blew the trumpet. He blew the shofar, and the war was over. And Absalom was buried. East of the Jordan River. Look at verse 17. Very important verse. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Absalom was buried, it says, east of the Jordan River. He's buried. That's where the battle took place. He's buried east of the Jordan River while all Israel went home to Israel. That's another contrast, the subtle contrast. You see, Absalom was excluded from the promised land. 
and he was buried, and on top of him, a heap of stones, which is quite ironic to be buried under a heap of stones because Torah's law against the rebellious son was what? Stoning. God got his man. He stoned. Buried under stones. David wanted gentleness to the young man Absalom. God wanted death. David commanded gentleness. And God fulfilled the law. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. A man who is hung for his punishments, the punishment being blasphemy, was accursed of God. And the word cursed is a curse formula. When Moses wrote that law, he was saying that the man who is hanged on a tree is the man who is cursed. That is, hanging by the tree is proof of God's curse against the man. The hanging is the curse. God ordained to harm Absalom, hung him on a tree because he was cursed. Verse 18, now Absalom in his lifetime had taken up and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. Remember, all his sons died. And he called the pillar after his own name. And he called it Absalom's monument to this day. The narrator includes the monument because the monument memorialized Absalom's curse. You could see the monument and remember that he was a cursed man without children and without life, without a place in Israel, buried east of the Jordan. The monument signified that Absalom could not escape God's judgment. The Lord declared in the Torah that the one who dishonored his father was a curse. The Lord declared in Torah, the one who slept with his father's wives, the concubines, is cursed. God cursed Absalom. So he simultaneously captured him and had him put to death. The Lord upholds his law. The Lord upheld his law that day, and the Lord always upholds his law. The death here of Absalom, the way he died in the monument, are a symbol, a sign. Absalom's end is a sign for all those who deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the end of everyone, for everyone who denies the gospel of Jesus Christ. Outside the promised land, cursed. Every Bible, turn with me to Galatians 3.10, an appropriate text in light of our text this morning. Galatians. Galatians 3.10. Paul writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The law is a terror. The law says, Fail me one time, death. 
Fail me one time, just one time, I dare you. Cursed. The law is a terror, death and hell. But juxtaposed to the law is the gospel. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Absalom was cursed. And God cursed Christ, his son, to save the cursed. Christ is the opposite of sin and death. He who knew no sin, our gospel reading this morning, he who knew no sin, juxtaposed to us, that's all we know. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ took our curse that we might have his satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness. So in Christ, by faith, juxtaposition. By faith in Christ, juxtaposition. You who are worthy of sin and death, the cursed, are now children of God. You see the contrast? And the juxtaposition means you are children of God, not because you are worthy in yourself, but because you are clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. And there's more contrast in our text. There's a race, a foot race, which was confusing for me. That's when I really began to see the contrast. Like, why is there a foot race? Like, there's a foot race between these two men, right? Another contrast. Amahez, Ahimez versus the Cushite. Ahimez wanted it to go. Joab's like, no, there's no reward. Why go? Don't bother. We got the foreigner. I'll send the foreigner. Let the foreigner bear the news. Let the foreigner bear the bad news. You never know what might happen to, to, the, bad, to the, bearer, the bearer of the news. Let the foreigner go. Amihez wanted to go. Joab finally says, all right, whatever. Amihez started out late, but he took the quicker way. He took the plane, and he won the race. Verse 24. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running along. Here we see David. He's anxious. He's anxiously waiting for news. The watchman called out and says, there's a man coming, and... David perceives as good. Verse 26, the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, see, another man running. The king said, he brings good news. David's excited. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is the running of Amaya's, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man. And so now David has assurance that it's good news. He's a good man. It's good news. Then Amaya's cried out to the king. He didn't hold back the news. He, did, he, he, buried, he didn't bury the lead, which you don't want that time. He, he came right out and said, it all is well. And he bowed before the earth. Blessed be the Lord your God has delivered up this man and raised, who's raised their hand against the Lord. But the king really only had one, you know, he only, he only cared about one thing. Verse 29. Is it well with the young man Absalom? And Amaya's couldn't, Amaya's uh, no, kind of fibs a little here. He buries the truth. He couldn't bear, give, the bad news. He didn't want to bad the bear news. Bear the bad news. He says, "I don't know. I don't know." There was some commotion about it. I'm, I'm not really sure what was going on. He he wanted he he wanted to bury the story, but then juxtaposed to him was the foreigner who came freely, ran up freely. And the Cushite, verse thirty-one, came and good news. The Lord, the King, for the Lord has delivered up to you this day the hand of all who rose against you. And the King said, 
because his real concern is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you for evil be like that young man. The two men both spoke of victory. One buried the story, the other didn't. There's a contrast there. There's a contrast in the running. There's a contrast, the juxtaposition in truth-telling. When the two men speak of victory, but David grieved. Verse 33, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I have died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. There was victory, but juxtaposed to the joy that comes with victory, it's now grief. You see, the night in Israel, or the night in camp, that night in camp should have been filled with joy. In previous times when there was victory, David, joy, there was music and, and tambourines and joy and singing. But not tonight. Tonight there's victory, but instead of victory, the opposite, shame. Verse 19, it was told Joab, behold, the king was weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day that the king is grieving for his son. Instead of joy, there's shame, the opposite of the joy. Verse 3, and the people stole in the city that day as people still in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. They shouldn't have been ashamed. They were victorious. But instead of victory, shame, like cowards. Instead of heroism and celebrated as heroes for the day, they're treated as and felt ashamed. It's victory versus grief. And Joab couldn't take it. He rebuked the men. And he ordered him to stop. He ordered the king to stop. And then David submitted to the general. He submitted to Joab's command. And, and Joab was wrong to defy the king, but he was right to save Israel. And the story ends with the same kind of contrast in which it began. It began with David in control. David mustering his troops. And it ends with the king submitting and at the bottom. It begins with David on the top. It ends with David on the bottom. Verse 8, Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. What do we do with all these contrasts? The narrator's been contrasting over and over again, all these juxtapositions, and he never answers the contrasts. He never says, this is right, this is wrong, this is what God is doing. He simply just lays out all these juxtapositions. What are we to do? We must widen our view and see the greater contrast between chapter 17 and chapter 18. In chapter 17, God delivers David. In chapter 18, he kills Absalom. And God didn't save David because of contrast. David wasn't better and more worthy of deliverance. There's no contrast between the two men, both murderers, both adulterers. And there's really no contrast. There's no contrast with the sons of Adam. We have all plunged ourselves in hell since all people have sinned in Adam. But in contrast, Christ was holy, born of the virgin. 
and went through hell to redeem us from the curse of the law. In contrast to David's grief, grief, a suffering king, Christ was a suffering servant who mourned. But contrast, he mourned not only because of his own grief and sin, he mourned over the grief and sin of his people. In contrast, the man of sorrows, Jesus Christ, bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And Christ is the real contrast of this story. An election in Christ is the contrast. Jesus didn't save everyone. He was born, the text says, the gospel says, he was born to save his people from their sins. He is the great sheep who lays down his life. For whom? The sheep. He's the high priest who prays not for the world, but for those whom the Father has given him. The contrast between David and Absalom is the contrast between the elect and the reprobate. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, 4. Ephesians 1, 4 says, Even as he chose us in him, even as God the Father has chose us, that Greek, the Greek there behind the word chose is electoi, electoi, where we get the word election. We also hear of election. We hear the words sometimes are determined. We hear the word planned. Sometimes it's destined. Here it's elected, even as he elected us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined, election, us for adoption as sons to Christ. In the doctrine of election, we also find its contrast. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. Here in the doctrine of election, God has destined us, we find the opposite. The doctrine of reprobation. Reprobation is the opposite destiny. So 1 Peter 2 writes, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. Peter says they don't believe because they are sinners and God has not destined them to be otherwise. And you cannot escape God's destiny. Jude 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation. And the clearest juxtaposition is Romans 9. Again, sorry we're jumping all over the place. But Romans 9, verse 11. Let us turn there now. Romans 9. Romans 9, 11. Paul writes, though they were not yet born. So he's talking about Sarah's two sons. Before they were born. Before they had done nothing either good or bad, they they had done nothing. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, 
not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And the love here and the hatred here is eschatological. One is blessed, one to protect, one to oppose. The love and hate are eschatological, an eschatological juxtaposition which presents an enigma, which Paul answers in verse 14. But what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will, or exertion. It's not what you think, what you do, or how, you know, your power, your exertion, your works. It's on God who has mercy. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Salvation is of God from beginning to end. It's on his love. It's on his mercy. And the doctrine of reprobation is a very humbling doctrine. But juxtaposed to the doctrine of reprobation is the doctrine of election, which is the most comforting doctrine in all of the Christian faith. Like David, though your life is filled with sin and death, contrary to this evil is God's election. God's love to protect, God's love to preserve you who do not deserve it. Never will. Why will God love and care for you so much, though you don't deserve it? The election has one answer. And election says this, because I loved you and I always will. I have loved you and I always will. I have loved you from before the foundations of the earth, before you were born and done nothing good or bad. I loved you, I always will. Doesn't matter your will or your exertion. You can exert the opposite and you will not fall from grace. You can't. You can't outrun God's love. You can't, you can't even outdo his love. Like you're able to do something when God's love comes after you. Ha ha. Like you're the real sovereign. I'll take that love and I'll show you, God. You cannot outrun the cross. You cannot overpower the cross. On the contrary, the cross overpowers you. And it has destroyed all your sin. All of it. You bear it no more. In Christ, your destiny is eternally set in the love of God. People often think of the canons when we talk about the canons of Dort. This isn't my notes. I'm going off on a tangent here. But people often read the canons of Dort or when they hear about the canons of Dort and Tulip and all these things, they're like, I don't want to read that. That just seems so frightening. And then you finally read it and you're like, that was the most comforting, shepherding, pastoring document I've ever read in the Christian life. Because it's about the love of God. In Christ, your destiny is eternally set in the love of God. And because of the preaching of the gospel, juxtaposed to what I thought earlier, the sermon wasn't quite the stinker I thought it might be when I first began. 
In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.